0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 9th of March 2023 on Monocle 24, The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, who blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipelines? Who are the Swiss bankers accused of helping Putin to hide his wealth? We'll examine the stories swirling around the periphery of Russia's war on Ukraine. Then...
1: We cannot fight terrorism and communism and all these other isms by Queensberry rules when they're using mixed martial arts. You know, we have to have the capability to hurt them, stop them, and ideally prevent
0: something from happening. Our spy series continues. Today, we're deep into black ops within the CIA. Plus, we head to India to find out what's behind the rapid expansion of the luxury market there. And we'll ask if plans to give the moon its own time zone are just loony. Also coming up, our brand new travel podcast The Concierge has launched. We'll hear a preview from Miami.
2: It's a public space on which life unfolds. As much for those who live in the area, as it is for those just passing through.
0: With a roundup of fashion news and a dip into the front pages, that's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. <laughs> First, a quick look at what else is happening in the news. Russian airstrikes have hit cities across Ukraine in a barrage that lasted for more than four hours. Nigeria has postponed elections for state governors and local assemblies by a week. And the French Senate has voted to raise the country's retirement age by two years to 64. Do stay tuned to Monocle24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, U.S. intelligence suggests that a pro-Ukrainian group blew up the Nord Stream pipelines last year. Investigators have been trying to determine who was responsible for the attack on the natural gas pipelines which link Russia to Western Europe. U.S. officials said that they had no evidence President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine or his top lieutenants were involved in the operation or that the perpetrators were acting at the direction of any Ukrainian government officials. Well, I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, Open Democracy's international security expert. Paul, what more can you tell us about this intelligence report that says a pro-Ukrainian group was responsible, but then almost seems to backpedal? What's going on here?
3: In terms of the actual perpetrators, frankly, one can tell, one can say very little. Uh, it is interesting the way this has come out. I mean, the attacks, of course, took place on, I think it was the 26th of of September uh, last year, uh, caused huge problems at the time because of what they meant symbolically. This is a very important pipeline, which, although it wasn't being used much at the time, would have been very important in the future. Um, Many different claims were made about who was responsible. A month ago, the veteran American uh, investigative reporter, Seymour Hersh, said there'd been reports that, in fact, the United States was involved. That was very vigorously denied. Now we have these reports in The New York Times, particularly the uh, German newspaper Der Zeit and a couple of public broadcasters, that this was actually a kind of operation done by a Ukrainian group with no connections to the government, at least that's the assumption. And in fact, there have been investigations in the last 48 hours following on that news, which came out just a couple of days ago. Um, The end result of all of this is, while we do not know, it seems to be pointing more at... um, uh, a Ukraine group which is not linked to government, in other words, a pro-government group that not at the direction of the government. That's about as far as we can go at the moment. It's important, of course, because as far as Ukraine is concerned, it doesn't want to be labelled with being responsible for this because, of course, the impact particularly on German politics was considerable. Germany both supportive of Ukraine and dependent on Russian gas. Maybe less so now in that late case, but the point is that for Ukraine actually to damage something which could have been supplies to Germany would be a major issue. And this is why we now have this situation of intense interest in in what's behind this and who did it.
0: Mm. And I mean, whether it's true or not, this perception is out there now. Will Russia use it to enforce the propaganda message that they are the victims?
3: I would have thought it almost without a doubt. I mean, this is a a major line that Putin has been taking for some time. Um, Right back before the war started, he always said that, you know, it was Russia that was under threat from an expansionary uh, NATO. And he's been insistent on that. And to some extent, he claims some truth in that now because, of course, it has become very much a proxy war. And much of the pace of the war is actually dictated from Washington because of the kinds of equipment that are being surprised. But there are other elements to this. I mean, I think we've seen um, Ukrainian special forces... And this rather weird group within Ukraine known as Kraken, uh, which have been conducting raids across the border into Russia. Uh, The drone attacks on on America, on on Russian air bases, uh, possibly even the being claims that the killing of Daria Dugina, uh, the daughter of Alexander Dugin, who is really Putin's favorite guru, uh, she was killed in a, in a car bomb in Moscow just a few months ago. So even that has been laid at the door of Ukraine, although I think that's very unlikely to be true. But overall, I think where what we're seeing now is, is a situation in which uh, you're getting claim and counterclaim. And the problem is virtually every side except currently the Ukrainian government has an interest in bringing this out. Mm. Um, what that means, who knows? But it's a, it, we're in a very weird position in, rega- in regard to this present.
0: So, I mean, EU defence ministers have been meeting in Stockholm, and I wonder if that gathering is completely overshadowed by this news.
3: I think it will have been very much affected because, of course, it is an important thing. The more general element here is it's a very stark reminder, uh, not just to Germany, but just to any country, depending on undersea transit of oil and gas, that these things are vulnerable. Um, The indications are that this could have even been done by a relatively small group hiring a yacht, having probably four or five experts backed up by medical support and going ahead and doing this. Now, what we do know from reports at the time was that these were very large explosions. We talk about more than one explosion because at that point in its access, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is more or less parallel with the Nord Stream 1. They're very close together in the Western Baltic. Uh, And the very fact that this could have this uh, disturbance of two major pipelines, and of course, they're not being repaired, uh, is is something which worries many people concerned with energy security. takes us right back to all the problems of 1973-74, of the massive increase in prices then, Mm. which was engineered by a newly strong OPEC, very different era. But very interesting comparisons with what we're seeing today.
0: Uh, And meanwhile, the trial of four bankers accused of helping Putin deposit millions of francs in Switzerland began in Zurich yesterday. Well, Fabian Kinzelman, who's international correspondent at the Handelszeitung in Zurich, joins us on the line. Fabian, who's on trial and what have they been accused of?
4: Yes. Good morning, Georgina. So there are four people on trial. One is the former head of Gazprombank's Swiss unit and um, three of his colleagues are on trial as well. They are charged for helping Putin's wallet, as the BBC called it. So it seems like they failed to raise the alarm over financial transactions made by um, a confidant of Vladimir Putin. Um, his name is Sergei Rodogin And the accusations concern the years 2014 to 2016. The prosecutors says the bank did not examine if Rodolzhen is actually the owner of the money or rather a straw man for Putin. Right. Because what's his relationship with Putin? So what we know about him is like he's a 72-year-old cellist from St. Petersburg, and he has held 30 million Swiss francs in assets at Gazprom Bank. But it is very unclear where this money comes from. He even said in an interview with the New York Times once he's no businessman and he doesn't own millions. But what is clear is that he has a close relationship with Putin. He's even the godfather of one of Putin's daughters. And the Panama Papers showed striking evidence that he's part of Putin's hidden financial network. And um, according to the International Court of Justice investigations, he is responsible for moving at least 2 billion US dollars through banks and offshore companies that are part of Putin's hidden financial network. And the US Treasury called him last June a custodian of President Putin's offshore wealth. So the European Union, and therefore Switzerland, blacklisted him after Russia's invasion in Ukraine. So Switzerland, as
0: we know, has very strict money laundering laws and has been trying to move away from the image of being a place where dirty money can be washed away. So how significant is this case? I mean, will it signal that the the Swiss courts are hoping to move more in that direction?
4: Yeah, you're saying that absolutely correct. Switzerland is given a hard time um, due to its like very special position um, in terms of neutrality, but also in terms of like being like the main country for banks and assets and money Um, and its neutrality is especially tested a lot. So the country has adopted the Western sanctions, but it it has also been criticized for not moving fast enough on freezing Russian assets so and it is unclear right now if the country might join other countries as they move forward with seizing the assets so the trial itself is read as like kind of a test of local prosecutors willingness and ability to punish what they believe to be financial wrongdoing amid a war that has upended um, traditional swiss neutrality and i think like the attention this trial gets that there are like so many international journalists are coming to zurich these days for the trial um, that really shows that the case is kind of significant. And is it hoped that it will expose the extent of Putin's wealth? Yeah, it, it could absolutely contribute to it, um, as already like the Panama Papers did, as like um, the EU and the US Treasury are doing with their investigation. Um, of course, it's unlikely that one single trial will expose everything, but it it definitely could be a the next puzzle piece so switzerland is
0: famously neutral uh, but figures show that the country's weapons exports have increased can you tell us more about that who's switzerland
4: sending weapons to yeah so switzerland is sending weapons um all over the world but of course especially to to other to um to eu countries um, and, um, of course, as 2022 sadly has been an exceptionally good year for the weapons industry. Of course, it has been one for the Swiss weapons industry as well. Um, there is German Rheinmetall, uh, which produces ammunition for Army, Navy, Air Force and Air Defense, um, also in Switzerland. And they even planned, like before the war started, they even planned to extend to expand their production in Switzerland. But um, here's now the case, as you say, Switzerland is neutral um, and it's given a hard time uh, on its stance on neutrality. And it has a clear competitive disadvantage. So the law forbids right now to export to war zones or to countries being involved in wars. So if a NATO country would step in to the Ukrainian war, um, Switzerland would have to stop delivering to them. And there's a big ongoing discussion for a year now as several countries, among them Germany, have asked Switzerland to allow them to deliver tanks ammunition they already bought from Switzerland. And so far, Switzerland does not allow it. And it's blocking it. So this could actually lead to in the future um, that European countries prefer to award future defense contracts to other countries. Mm. So but also hit Swiss industry quite hard.
0: Yeah. Uh,
4: Paul, if I could just come back to you, talking about ammunition, because
0: we know that there is a great shortage of ammunition on the front line, particularly the Wagner Group has been complaining about that. Now, that same group, this group of mercenaries, Russian mercenaries, have claimed victory in the eastern part of Bakhmut. Is that true? Is it just propaganda?
3: We simply don't know. I mean, the, the issue here is that... Um, uh, the Wagner Group is claiming this. It more or less claimed this a few days ago. As far as you can tell, that the the way the war has become stalemated there. There may be minor progress so that, you know, frankly, a few more streets are taken. But to talk sort of broadly about, you know, we've taken half the city. It's not a large city. This is not a huge metropolis. Uh, and basically, I think this is just propaganda to remind the rest of the, the Russian state that Wagner is so important. Uh, and that, I think, is going to be persisting here. Uh, it may well be that Russia does eventually take control of the, of the city, but it's not a major issue of strategic significance. This is basically for Russia to be able to say, well, at least we can make progress. We do have a victory. Mm-hmm. And the Vardy group is very much part of that. As far as the wider weapons thing is concerned, virtually every country involved in this war has shortage of ammunition one way and another. Because as far as Russia is concerned, it's been used at a heck of a rate. Uh, as far as Western countries are concerned, they had relatively low supplies of many of these standard Uh, forms of ammunition, simply because they were not expecting a major war to an extent. And now they're all trying to work hard. But certainly what is absolutely true is, as Fabian was saying, this is classically an era of now Thrive the Armourers. It's a very good time to be involved in the arms industry, virtually anywhere, even in Switzerland, with the limitations that it has.
0: Paul Rogers and Fabian Kinzelman, thank you very much for joining us here on The Globalist. This week we've been taking you into the world of espionage to unpack what it's really like to work as a spy undercover. In our fourth episode we meet Rick Prado, a 24-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, where he served as Deputy Chief of Station of the original Osama Bin Laden Task Force and as Chief of Counterterrorism Operations during the 9-11 attacks. Rick sat down with Andrew Muller to discuss his remarkable career at the CIA, which he writes about in his book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Andrew began by asking Rick whether he thinks the CIA's ability to protect innocent lives is sometimes hindered by strict rules of engagement.
1: When you're trying to protect against offensive operations, you have to have the experience to put yourself in the mind of your enemy. I'll give you an example. I could never set off a bomb in a school, or I could never, that's just something that is unfathomable to be. However, it isn't to our enemy. As to the actual question, it is really basic. I mean, there is a moral responsibility in everything that we do, but we cannot fight terrorism and communism and all these other isms by Queensberry rules when they're using mixed martial arts. You know, we have to have the capability to hurt them, stop them, and ideally actually prevent something from happening.
5: That being the case, then, what kind of constraints should an organisation like the CIA operate under? And what kind of constraints do its operatives operate under when they are operating often, as you were yourself, on their own initiative a long way from any oversight?
1: Well, actually, the the uh, the oversight is extensive. Our agency—that's one of the many fallacies, and one of the reasons that I wrote Black Ops—is that we are always portrayed as these maniacal assassins that are doing illegal things that Congress doesn't know about. So that is the perception that most people have, and, and it's, it's quite the contrary. You know, the uh, our intelligence community has goes under a lot of congressional oversight. As far as the morality and the the parameters, you have to understand that the CIA works for the President of the United States. Our job is to steal secrets to protect our country and to do black ops, covert action where the US hand needs to be hidden or at least subdued. The amount of flexibility that we have is infinite. Mm -hmm. The ability we have The authorities come directly from the president, so it becomes a political issue. And I'll give you an example: Osama bin Laden. I started the bin Laden task force in 1996. By 1997, we knew what he was having for lunch in Khartoum. but we were never allowed to render him. We weren't talking about killing him at the time. We were talking about just rendering him and bring him in for the criminal charges or interrogation or whatever. That never happened. And we had guys on the ground that kept telling us, we can grab this guy anytime we want. Now, imagine if we would have had the political fortitude to carry that out, most likely the coal wouldn't have happened. The twin bombings of our embassies in Africa wouldn't have happened. And maybe even 9-11 would have happened.
5: How hard is it, though, to always maintain, I guess, a rational approach to what you're doing, an analytical approach to what you're doing? I I was struck by, and it is an extraordinary passage of Black Ops, when you write about moment by moment what it was like being chief of ops at the counterterrorism centre as you're watching September 11th unfold on the television screens, you write of feeling yourself this absolute blind, furious rage with the people who were doing this, which is, I guess, in the moment, an entirely understandable response. But how clearly are you able to think and how clearly was the CIA thinking on that day and in the days afterwards?
1: Well, it, it, that, that's what we do for a living. So uh, if you cannot work under stress, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> and uh, you don't get to a position like chief of ops if you have you're hesitant about making decisions and, and, uh, and, and taking point on the actions. Uh, the agency was extremely busy at the time because we were getting so much chatter we knew that there was something happening we knew that there was something big but you know these guys are not as a lot of people misunderstand the terrorists are not just camel jockeys they're not just you know these guys that did 9-11 were highly educated guys who were smart enough to you know to learn how to fly a 747. so uh no i mean every, everybody was clicking everybody has their zones of coverage Of course, our Bilatin group, which, again, it was something that I was part of at the very beginning, was focused on this. But for example, our Hezbollah uh, group was also very focused on the attack because until 9-11, nobody had killed more Americans than Hezbollah. So everybody has their their lanes of expertise the same way that our analysts also take their gloves off. Everybody gets focused on that mission. And the whole network of cia stations worldwide were actually told two things by me first watch your six this is not a singular event something else is coming and second hit all your sources the liaison sources unilateral sources and see what we can get on this event
5: you do write in the book, as well as your frustration with fictional depictions of the CIA, a certain amount of frustration with how well the CIA communicates what it's doing. And it's, it's, it's striking juxtaposing with that, with the, the sections where you write about your time spent in Honduras and Nicaragua with the Contras in the 1980s. You make a, a fairly strident, unapologetic case for the Contras, which is to put it mildly not a fashionable opinion anymore if, if indeed it ever was did did the cia just do a poor job of explaining themselves
1: well look the the, the problem that the, the agency has is the media is never friendly to us sensationalism is what sells we don't deal in that i'm not saying that we're crystal pure that the, that the conscience were 100 percent good people no there were some black sheep i brought two in, in for for justice but the greater majority of those countries, for example, were extremely loyal to God, to their God and their country. That's all they were there to do. They, they were not ever, you know, these, these weren't guys and, and gals that discussed Mao Zedong or Lenin. No, these people had the, the reason for being there was they raped my daughter. They burnt my church and beat up my priest. Everybody had a personal reason for being there, including the majority of the commanders. Was it 100 percent? No, neither is the United States, neither is politics, neither is anything. We're humans.
5: I, I did want to ask as well about your time after leaving the agency. And you you write about this in the book. You, you go and work for Blackwater, a, pri- a private military contractor. Is there the same tension in the private sector between rules of engagement various other strictures imposed on an organization as there is with the CIA and and if there isn't should there be
1: First of all there are I mean you know when and and that, I did exactly that for Blackwater my, my my title was vice president for special government programs so uh, I was very much engaged with the, the special DOD components both military and and, and intel and they are under incredible scrutiny. And thus, I was under incredible scrutiny. I had to report everything. Everything had to be documented. Everybody had, everything had to be signed off. If I was going on a trip to do A, Y, and Z, you know, they would have to say, okay, you're ready to go. You can do this. You can do that. Parameters are there. Most of these units, people don't, don't know this. Most of these pu- units have not only lawyers, but like FBI representatives in-house that are cleared to know what's going on. In these operations, so they can say, wait a minute, this cannot happen. This this is too close to the to the border of uh,
0: going illegal. That was Rick Prado speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller there. Now still to come on the program. Fly me to the moon, let
6: me play among the stars, and let
0: me see what spring is like on. A Jupiter and Mars Fly me to the moon, but when exactly? We'll find out why the European Space Agency wants to give the moon its own time zone. This is The Globalist.
7: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
6: To find out how we could help you,
7: contact us at ubs.com. <music>
0: India's 1.4 billion people have a per capita income of just $2,300. But the country has more than $800,000 millionaires. And it's estimated there'll be 1.4 million millionaires there by 2026. Now, they're spending their cash at home and on homes. The luxury housing market is booming. And to find out why, I'm joined by Indian luxury expert and founder and CEO of Luxury Connect, Abhay Gupta, Many thanks for joining us, Abhay. What is driving this appetite for luxury living in India?
7: Well, I believe the appetite for luxury, firstly, thank you for having me on your show. So the appetite for luxury uh, is basically, I would say, a huge amount of urbanisation, large amount of Henry's young population. Uh, COVID has added to this demand in terms of work-from-home conditions, uh, from cramped townhouses into open uh, cottages, open floors, open independent uh, Floors. Uh, that's what is driving this particular demand, and people are looking for a better uh, life quality.
0: And what sort of properties are we talking about here?
7: Uh, well, there are various kinds of properties, but I think what is really taking off in a big way is the condominium living, where uh, all kind of add-on facilities are provided, from a heated swimming pool to a concierge uh, to nannies, to a play area for children, for a pet, for an area for the pets to be uh, walked around. Uh, there is a garage. And there's all kinds of facilities provided uh, that you can ever think of. So those were not available in independent houses or the earlier houses that were there uh, in Delhi. So now people are moving out of the congested cities and coming out into the suburbs where these kind of facilities come, add on to the property that they purchase. And I wonder who's buying them? Oh, well, there are all, all kinds of people, I would say from the middle income uh, to the upper middle income. Uh, people are moving in and there are there are apartments uh, Uh, which are suiting the taste and pockets of various segments. So I would say that anyone from the mid-income category upwards is buying into these kind of various properties uh, curated for their capacity, their pockets.
0: Mm. And I wonder if this is new money or if the wealthy, the sort of traditionally wealthy, are choosing to spend in a different way. I mean, there are suggestions that for decades, high net worth individuals hid riches because India, socialists, and frowned on ostentatious living.
7: Oh, well, you're correct that in the earlier days, people were hiding the riches, but it's no more the case uh, uh, because I believe more and more the the economy is moving towards, uh, I would say, white economy from the cash economy and more and more people, the younger generation is openly spending their money. There is no dearth of people buying on credit cards and I would say the rules of the land have become very strict in terms of how do you consume the money and where do you spend the money. So people are open to spending in a very open capacity and real estate which is infested with let's say cash dealings, is no longer the case it is increasingly becoming uh coming above the board economy so there is no challenge whatsoever in terms of you know there are housing loans available and there are rich people uh, buying into the new generation new lifestyle of living moving away from old bungalows because it is impossible to create the kind of facilities for a single unit whereas in a condo living this is coming as as, as 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 a combination of living and lifestyle, so mm. that's the reason. What
0: about the luxury market more generally? Are we seeing a rise of of luxury heritage brands wanting a piece of this Indian market?
7: You mean Indian luxury
0: brands or global no? Luxury I, brands? I mean I mean uh, things like so. For instance, I, I think um, uh, Balenciaga came in recently. Big international ba- brands.
7: That is correct. So Balenciaga, Valentino announced their entry very recently. So yes. There is an increase of luxury brands wanting to come into India. So we have had our own challenges with respect to lack of luxury real estate with respect to retail. So that is now soon being taken care of by the real estate developers. And we have new malls and new infrastructure coming up in cities like Delhi and Bombay. Uh, And that's where the brands are actually heading in. So I would say that uh, luxury in general is on the upswing when it comes to India as a market. People are exposure because of social media exposure because of Global travel uh, exposure because of the young population wanting to uh, lead the good life, I would say, is extremely high. And Indians are today demanding what is available to the global youth all over the world. There is definitely an opportunity more and more brands are entering the market. Uh, The government is working towards easing uh, the norms of doing business in India. As you know, I mean, there's a lot of work being done by the current uh, government for the past eight, nine years uh, that has brought in a lot of uh, foreign direct investment and brands in all categories are coming in. In fact, I mean if I talk of brands like a Rolls-Royce or a Lamborghini etc in the super luxury category, I would say that they are sold out for the next 2 years.
0: That's extraordinary. I mean, I wonder what challenges face those luxury brands who are wanting to operate in India, wanting to open up in a new market. Uh, do do you think that they need to learn to understand how India works first?
7: That is true. So I would agree with you because, you know, India is, uh, unlike uh, any uh, European country, India is a very large country, it's it's a subcontinent. And uh, the, the consumer behavior here is very diverse with respect to culture, food, eating habits, spending habits, value consciousness, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So it makes sense for an international brand to first come and understand the market, uh, either directly or by hiring a consultant or setting up a team in, in, in India. Really understand what to open, where to open, when to open, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because uh, one wrong move could be expensive. Because in luxury, everything is super, super, super top of the line. So the cost of the real estate is high. Acquiring customers is is difficult because you have to you know, really create those ultra luxury experiences for uh, pulling a customer. Because they may or may not have heard of your brand. So uh, you need to create that kind of a pull, and that can be expensive. So it makes sense to to really understand the market well and read about the culture of the people at the geographical location that you should open, etc., before you enter in to the market in the full swing.
0: And that's something, of course, that, that you do. Is this boom in the luxury market also equally true in the digital space?
7: That is true. So I would say that post-COVID. So while pre-COVID, uh, it was very, very hesitant steps that luxury you know, brands were taking towards the e-commerce market. But then uh, COVID has really acted as a catalyst and... Uh, I would say that now the luxury outreach into the smaller towns of of India has also accelerated because acceptance of delivery from uh, using e-commerce as a platform has come in. So we have now luxury penetrating the tier two, tier three cities at at much ease because people have opened up to spending on e-commerce using their credit card uh, credentials onto e-commerce platform where they were hesitant earlier. So I would say general shift towards acceptance of the digital medium, whether it is banking or or grocery shopping or luxury shopping has come in into a big way. And uh, that is helping the, the growth of luxury brands beyond just the major metro cities of India. Mm.
0: And I'll say finally, I mean, India is set to overtake Japan and Germany to become the world's third largest economy. That's according to S&P Global and Morgan Stanley. Do you think that this boom will last?
7: Oh, well, yes, I would say that uh, the kind of activity that we see happening all around us in India and the way our GDP is growing, it's already doubled in the in the in the last year since our previous few years uh, GDP. Uh, there is a buoyancy in the market. Uh, more and more new generational uh, employment prospects have come in. Infrastructure development is at the peak. I mean, I think seventy-four or seventy-eight airports have been opened in the past few years. Uh, rapid development of road infrastructure uh, connecting all the major cities in India is is happening at a very very fast pace. So, I believe that. The bottlenecks that any international business faced earlier which was largely custom duties and largely infrastructural challenges those are being addressed now in a business like luxury the third challenge has also been to find the right talent to service uh the hni category so that that, that challenge has also been taken up i mean we for example set up india's first and only luxury business school uh, about 11 years back and now we have at least 10 other schools trying to fulfill this particular need because there's a huge demand of people who can service the uh, luxury consumer. So those challenges are being uh, being attended uh, slowly but surely. So I don't see any reverse track happening in the economy or in the luxury consumption uh, because of the rise in economy.
0: Abhay, thank you so much. That's Abhay Gupta there. And uh, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Russian airstrikes have hit cities across Ukraine in a barrage that lasted for more than four hours. Blasts were heard in 13 Ukrainian regions, including the capital, Kyiv. Ukrainian officials say residential buildings and key infrastructure have been hit, and there are blackouts in several areas. Nigeria has postponed elections for state governors and local assemblies by a week, following a court decision over machines used in tallying of votes. The country's independent electoral commission says the move will allow more time for the machines to be reconciled configured and deployed for the upcoming vote the polls will now take place on march the 18th and the french senate has voted to raise the country's retirement age by 2 years to 64 it comes amid mass protests over so plans to overhaul the country's pension system the deadline to finalize the legislation is sunday this is the globalist stay tuned It's 7.31 in London, but what time is it on the moon? The European Space Agency says we need to, we need to create a time zone up there to simplify things, as different countries are planning lunar missions. Well, David Badanis, the author of The Art of Fairness and many other books, joins me in the studio now. David, why is the European Space Agency suggesting a lunar time zone?
8: It turns out later this year there's going to be probably two different spaceships on the moon, and in the next few years, there might be human beings running around there. Now, it turns out if one says, oi, can you send me some help at 327? And the other one says, do you mean 327 Washington, D.C. or Tokyo, et cetera, et cetera? Same thing happened actually when railroads were first developed in Britain. Uh, uh, Plymouth and uh, Bristol used to have different times from London. They were like 11 minutes behind or 12 and a half minutes or something. And it didn't really matter when you uh, walked there or took a coach. But with rail lines, you had to synchronize.
0: Does time work the same on Earth and on the moon?
8: It turns out (laughs) that there's a very slight difference. Uh, 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 Time flows. We think of time flowing at a constant rate, but it's more sort of like air pressure. You know, we we think air is the same everywhere, but high on a mountain, there's less air, and lower uh, on the surface of the Earth, there's more air. On the moon, because there's a bit less gravity, uh, time flows at a slightly different rate. The people on the moon don't notice it. For them, their things are going absolutely fine, but from Earth, we see things are going slower. Just a little bit. Not enough to notice. Maybe a billionth of a second. But it's there.
0: So, would lunar time be synchronised with the Earth or with the Moon? And which time zone on our planet would it be allied to? Could it be... Greenwich moon time.
8: (laughs) (laughs) We love that. Now, it turns out in the 1800s, when they were trying to work out time zones for the whole world, you know the thing that there's international date lines and 24 hours going around? That was invented in the 1800s. Paris wanted the central meridian to go through Paris. London said, we have the Royal Navy, big boy. It's going through Greenwich. And Greenwich won. So usually, the um, instead of the voice of reason, the person with the largest battleships or aircraft carriers wins. So it'll either be uh, Beijing or uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Or Elon Musk. Elon Musk just floating up there. And if Elon Musk wishes to take a, a permanent habitation there, I believe a great number of uh, residents of our planet would not mind. <laughs> And there's plenty we can think who might want to go
0: with him. I mean as space exploration increases and we go further afield, will that mean, particularly if Elon's up there, that we'll need a Mars time zone, and so on and so on.
8: Well, you're getting onto something big. Uh, uh, You know, when you send uh, children off into the world, at the beginning, you think they're going to write and do exactly what you want, as if. Same thing when you send off colonies from Britain, they become different in different ways. If human beings spread through the solar system, which will take a while with chemical rockets, but if they do, they'll become different in nature. Also, uh, on some places like Mars, if you never go outside, uh, you might not need, I don't know, hair on your head. And in other places, you might not need Feet or legs and stuff. You'll see the sort of differentiation you get a little bit like on the Upper East Side of New York, just all sorts of different human species coexisting. <laughs>
0: I love to think that the upper side of the upper east side is somehow inhabited by aliens. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Now, Tom Cruise was hoping to be the first person to make a movie in space, but he's been blasted out of orbit by a Russian film. What can you tell us about the challenge? Uh,
8: what I could say is that um, uh, uh, have you seen Tom Cruise and the uh, what seems to be the female Russian star of that uh, film? Photographed together at the same time, everywhere we know for Mission Impossible, he's a master of disguise. What if, at the end of the film, the face rips off and it's
0: and it's really <laughs> yeah,
8: the stud from Kentucky. Uh, it's a, it's a actually a good idea. Uh, after a while, people, it'll depend on how good the film is. So clearly it's going to be some sort of rescue thing with somebody not a specialist. We get really used to technology. You know, like when, if you're in an airplane flying over the Alps or something at an incredible speed, and your computer is, low, is slow to load, or the, the video on the screen in front of you is slow. We complain about it. So at the beginning, we'll see how exciting he's in outer space. But after a while, we'll say, you know, I cut the middle act.
0: Yeah. What was that movie um, where he was lost outside the spaceship? I think it was George Clooney, actually, wasn't it? Wafting about in space or someone.
8: Yes, uh, 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 George Clooney uh, and uh, and Sandra Bullock.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I almost chewed my arm off in boredom watching that. But one thing that (laughs) struck me was... uh, that, of course, in space, what you have is silence.
8: Well, this is another thing. You know all all the great explosions you hear in outer space? uh, You could have an enormous thermonuclear explosion a little bit next to you. Admittedly, you wouldn't want to stand next to it. And you would hear nothing whatsoever. And the same thing, did you see the film Armageddon? They were landing on, a, uh, uh, on an asteroid or something that was on, on track to, uh, to attack Earth. And to slow down, they powered the rockets as powerful as they could, which in real life would send you accelerating off into space. We do not watch these movies to learn physics A-level. We watch them to see George Clooney be a man. Really? Well, I, it's certainly I wouldn't go there to watch Sandra Bullock slowly undress in front of the camera. That would be, like, irrelevant and no self-respecting actors would do that sort of thing these days.
0: Absolutely. David, I've got one final question for you about this new time zone. Are you over the moon? <laughs> or are you just over the moon?
8: <laughs> right, we will have to look up and admire it.
0: Uh, Looney talk there with David Badanas. Thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist. PBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, And an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. This is coming up to eight thirty-eight in Zurich, seven thirty-eight here in London, and let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Andrew Walker, journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. Andrew, welcome back. Hello, nice to be here. Uh, now we're talking about uh, this warning from Citigroup yeah. that Russia could disrupt metals markets. Now tell us yes, more. Yes,
6: yeah, you've already been talking about the the big concern that um, uh, that the, the war raised in relation to international um, commodities. Markets and that's energy with the uh, and and this story about the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, but so far, Russia has not really taken advantage of the uh, influence it can have on global metals markets. It's a major producer of a number of very important metals, aluminium, palladium, platinum, nuclear fuels, copper and more. Um, and Citigroup, the big um, financial services um, conglomerate, has been warning some of its clients about the risks that Russia might just make use of the power it has in these markets to, um, to try and cause further disruption. And you know, Russia is by no means a monopoly supplier of these things, but it is very important. And if it were to start using the influence it potentially could have, it could mean significant disruption to supply chains around the world. Now, while... um, Europe, in particular, has tried to um, wean itself off, with some success, wean itself off Russian energy supplies. Um, there's not been the anything like I mean, almost no action taken to restrict um, restrict Russian exports of these metals. And so, if if some move were taken by Russia to to, to disrupt things, then it could be you know could could be really quite significant implications for an awful lot of industries. And I mean, aluminium, for example, has widespread applications Copper obviously also does. Palladium, platinum, very important for the motor industry for catalytic converters.
0: Absolutely. I wonder why Russia has not yet chosen to weaponise this. What
6: we could do with the money. I'm, I'm sure is an <laughs> enormous part of it. And um, and, uh, and equally the reason that um, that the West has decided not to um, intervene on the other side of the, the market, I suppose, is because it is such an important supplier. Striking thing about the energy, the energy thing, of course, is that Europe. Europe. Europe has managed to get through um, by diversifying, by Energy efficiency, um, and by
0: getting gas in from other places. Mm. Well, of course, if there is a problem getting certain minerals from and metals from Russia, uh, that might affect things like batteries. But the Sydney Morning Herald has a very encouraging story on battery technology. Yes, this is
6: really striking. Um, the, the 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 papers looking at. Um, uh, 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 some new developments in the United States um, where um, uh, laboratories there have have been working on batteries that they say have got high enough energy density, that's to say the amount of energy they can store per kilogram of weight, um, that goes far beyond what um, car batteries used in electric vehicles can currently achieve. Um, moreover, they reckon they can do this without having to use any cobalt at all. Now, that's another important um, uh, um rare earth metal which is um, w- which is largely dominated by the Democratic Republic of Congo, the supply of it and um, cobalt mining there is frequently described as a ecological and human disaster mm. so um, weaning the industry off that would certainly be helpful they also suggest um, in, in this this article that um, um, there is an option um, not quite so effective in terms of improving energy density but certainly an improvement on where we are currently um, that doesn't involve any lithium and that's another um, metal where you um, some people have expressed concern about whether we will be able to get enough lithium at the right price to complete the energy transition. And, and on some of the more optimistic um, projections being made by the, these US laboratories um, and, and by the writer of, of this article, it might even be that batteries could turn out to have some uh, useful contribution to make to aviation, which is an area um, where, which has so far been particularly problematic in terms of weaning the world off fossil fuels mm.
0: i went on uh, i think one of the world's first um electric planes in norway and, and they were explaining to me that the problem mm. that it could only take two people was that the batteries are so heavy indeed, yeah. that you can't yeah. you know have a, a, a huge airline powered yeah, yeah. by them obviously yeah. um and so that's a hope that this yeah. technology yeah. will shrink
6: yeah indeed the expect that the hope certainly in uh, which seems to be borne out by um, by by the research being done at these laboratories is indeed such large increases in how much energy you can store in a kilogram that um, that there might be some hope there uh, they're not talking about replacing jumbo jets certainly not at this stage with um with that kind of technology but but smaller smaller things that would have some useful commercial application which clearly the your experience probably wouldn't have wouldn't have done it was a an interesting demonstration i'm sure of Mm a a, of 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 a, a kind of proof of concept but at that stage at least clearly not commercial well maybe there is hope if this um, if, if these expectations are borne out
0: Let's go to France now and of course we know that there have been ongoing demonstrations about this mm-hmm. retirement age but the Senate has voted for pension reforms, they're pressing ahead yeah. um, so tell us more. Yeah, just uh, after
6: midnight so we've got um, Le Monde um, reporting how the pension uh, the um, the Senate did vote for one key element in, the, in President Macron's uh, pension reform proposals just after midnight um, and that's the raising of the basic retirement age from 62 to 64. There are other elements that the Senate still got to consider, and um, the President is hoping to get all that done by the end of the week. It would then need to go to um, a reconciliation committee for the um, to 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 to, um, uh, to c- c- so that the, the same legislation goes through both the senate and the national assembly um but he is certainly hoping to get it on the on the statute books by the end of the month um but you know as you say we've had further Uh, demonstrations in the course of um, the week. Latest ones yesterday um, had a particular element of um, International Women's Day because um, uh, some campaigners are saying that these reforms, some aspects of them will particularly disadvantage women. So although he has, President Macron, has made some progress in the Senate, um, he's still got an awful lot of uh, political opposition to deal with.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Finally, um, sushi terrorism.
6: Yes indeed. Um we sometimes like to bring in a lighter story don't we. This one's not so much lighter <laughs> as revolting frankly. Um and that is uh, so so s- sushi restaurants with the the famous conveyor belt system of of cu- of serving the food to customers have had some problems with um, people contaminating some of the material like sucking on soy sauce bottles and uh, there was one report of um, a cigarette butt being put in a in a in a ginger a pickled ginger jar well um, and that has had some quite st- striking effects um, affecting the share prices of some of the big um, sushi chains for example and some have been trying to think uh, have been trying to move away from this conveyor belt system um, which, which is Quite a challenge, really, when you think about it, because one of the re- one of the appeals of it is that um, it, it's um, it's an automated system in a country where labour supply is a huge problem. Well, the news that's have come broken just in the in the last few hours has been that police have made three arrests in connection with this. Um, so there was a a twenty one year old. Um, man has been uh, arrested in connection with actually um doing the contamination and two younger people uh, for allegedly aiding him by um filming it and uploading a short clip onto social media um so it's not over but it does sound like a an important and i would suspect rather welcome development for um for japanese sushi enthusiasts
0: doesn't it make you just want to stop using anything which has got a conveyor belt wouldn't you rather wait order and wait
6: yeah you might well do yeah um i think the part, part of this is about um as i as i said before about labor supply issues and also getting costs down um one of the things that a lot of automated Um, systems in Japanese sushi restaurants have achieved is made it into much more of a mass market food than perhaps it was before. The traditional image of the lovingly prepared individual Mm. piece of sushi, um, that's still there, obviously, but but using these kind of um, automated systems does enable you to get it to a much bigger mass market.
0: Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That was Andrew Walker, and this is The Globalist. Time for a roundup of the latest fashion news with Dana Thomas, the Paris-based author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. Dana, welcome back to the programme. How was Paris Fashion Week?
9: Well, you can tell by my voice, it's a little bit party girl sounding, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Paris Fashion Week is back baby it was there was more happening this week than's happened in four years there were parties there were book signings there were shows there were showrooms there was just really great energy there was lots of fun influencers posing out front and look getting all dolled up i found myself at the stelle mccartney show seated next to a pair of uh twin sisters i think i'm pretty sure they're twins anyway they looked alike (laughs) From uh, either somewhere in Southeast Asia. And they had pink bobs, sort of magenta pink bobs. They were dressed in pink. They had pink makeup on and pink shoes and pink nails. They were fantastic. So all the eccentricities, all the fun, it's all back. And what about favourite shows and moments for you? Well, I I loved the Stella McCartney show, which was a bit controversial. She had it at the... um, Militaire which is the military school set that was founded by Louis Catals and has a horse, it still has its cow. Had a horse whisperer sh- do the show with... Um, with horses as a backdrop and it was really beautiful but there were a lot of animal rights people who said this was abusive in fact these were rescue horses and the horse whisperer was so lovely with them and he was smiling and the horses were smiling and they were rolling in the dirt they were having a lot of fun if you actually know horses I but watched the clothes it looked yeah great too the clothes looked great too so mm-hmm. there's a lot of 1970s happening a lot of flared pants a lot of pants suits this is what we're going to see in the fall and some and chunk, chunky sweaters and comfortable clothes, but kind of... S- chic 70s which Stella does so well
0: I thought it worked so well with the horses actually I thought, I thought that it was beautiful it was fantastic and and the kind of juxtaposition of the elegance of the horses and the models and it just I, I thought it was a, a, a stroke of genius frankly and
9: my and for me that moment when they were these beautiful pristine white horses got in the dirt and rolled around I was like well there we have
0: it <laughs> they're having fun
9: <laughs> we all just need to roll around in the dirt every once in a while have yeah. a good time uh there was some robot dogs Yes, there were also robot Docs. You know, this is what we now call clickbait fashion shows. And while Stella's was definitely clickbait for Instagram, it also was part of her ethos, you know, about protecting and honoring animals. But the Copernic pair, the, these two designers who have the company called Coperni, have been doing lots of clickbait shows where they're sort of stealing the idea that, that McQueen did, but McQueen was doing it before there was Instagram of doing some sort of performance art moment at their show. And this year, it was dog robots. And there was a lot of backlash to it, because mainly because the clothes that the dog robots were interacting with on the models, the clothes that the models were wearing, was pretty pedestrian. It was pretty boring. It wasn't very cool fashion like McQueen was doing. So it suddenly became clear that they were doing this to get the attention, that the clothes weren't good enough to get attention on their own. And that's where the backlash of the clickbait show is quickly coming like, okay, you're doing a cool thing because actually your clothes are boring. <laughs> and interestingly, the person who has become famous for that, though his clothes were great, Demna at Balenciaga paired it all down and just showed great clothes. He had been the click, master of clickbait shows until his big controversy last year. And they had to really quiet it down and just turn it back into fashion. And of course, if there's a house that should be about fashion, it's Balenciaga. Mm, absolutely. I mean, you, you talk about McQueen, and I wonder if what we're seeing now is a,
0: a rise of spectacle going back to the 90s, the type of stuff that McQueen and Galliano were doing then.
9: Definitely there is, but it's for a different reason. Back then they were doing it because it really brought a great energy to the space and the show and the people who were there. And now everyone just holds up a phone and takes a picture. Yeah. Interestingly, one of the things that happened this week was the opening of the New exhibition at the Musée Galliera, which is the Fashion Museum of Paris. And it is dedicated to the year 1997, when John Galliano made his Dior debut and McQueen started at Givenchy. And there was lots of other things that were happening. And it's interesting to go back and see those clothes and that exhibit now and see how, while they seemed very far out then, they are very they're very of today that these guys were ahead of their time and now we're seeing it and it was kind of like a big bang moment in fashion 1997 as I write in my book gods and kings so much was happening and it was all really coming together in a fabulous way
0: mm.
9: uh, and finally a very quick look at the sustainability aspect yes well you know there was it was interesting one of my favorite shows was uh Rick Owens, who does the most far out, it's not even clothes we'll wear today or tomorrow or next year or in two seasons. It's like clothes that are coming down the pike in, in 20, or 30 de- 20 or 30 years, a bit like the 1997 shows. But he uses a lot of sequins, which made me a bit uncomfortable. And I'd actually not seen so many sequins on the runway, you know, in one season. Then I, I think there were more this year than there's been in the 30 years I've been covering the business. And sequins, of course, are made of PVC, which is plastic and it's very toxic. And you almost feel like the sequin business is freaking out that they're gonna get shunted for something more green, so they've just like really amped it up and trying to get their their material out there. But there was there was some good sustainability at Chloe, of course, with Gabriella Hurst. She has they're a B Corp company and she really does adhere to making clothes as low impact as possible. And of course Stella does as well. She was showing new lines of new versions of the the um, mycelium handbag called the frame the milo frame and that's made from mushrooms that's made from mushrooms and she also has a handbag or and shoes that are made out of grape leather and she's got some other cool new materials so it's starting to all these ideas that were startups when i wrote fashionopolis or even just ideas are now not only being scaled up but are being shown on the runway which is really thrilling to see
0: dana thank you so much that's dana thomas and uh, as well as the book she's written she also does the podcast the green dream which tells us much more about uh, fashion and sustainability this is the globalist on monocle 24 And finally, something special from the maiden voyage of our brand new travel podcast, The Concierge. A letter from is the weekly dispatch, courtesy of our correspondents and contributors from destinations around the world. This week, Thomas Lewis sends us this letter from Miami on how a decade-long renovation of the coastal footpath that runs between the city and the sand has reinvigorated its boardwalk.
2: It was a day or two after my birthday last November in Miami and one night at around 10 o'clock in the evening, the festivities having well ebbed by then, we opted to go for a gentle stroll through the neighbourhood before turning in for the day. Our path took us along the Miami Beach boardwalk, which snakes north for seven miles from the southern tip of the neighbourhood all the way up to 87th Street. It's lined by the neighbourhood on one side and the sea on the other. And despite it being fairly deep into the evening, the air was warm, the dark sky was clear and the boardwalk was full of life. There were couples sharing gelatos on the benches that are dotted along the route. Teenagers crammed onto scooter rentals whizzed by. Cyclists passed us too. Dates held hands as they wandered beneath the warm and dim lamplights that lined the route And one pair of friends, who were walking a dog at the time, each had a fresh cocktail in their hands as they strolled along the walkway. Boardwalks were first conceived in the US in the 1870s, and they still evoke something pretty specific about beachside towns and cities across the United States. A raised walkway of wooden planks, usually lined on one flank by amusement parks, food and novelty stands and other kitscher attractions of the oceanfront. On the other, the sand and the sea. Miami Beach's boardwalk, or beachwalk as it's become known to some in the neighbourhood, does something different. Well, it isn't made of boards, first of all. It's been paved in sections along its length. And the curves of the path are fringed by beach plant life. And the route itself gives way to parks, public showering spots, a mussel beach and offshoot walkways onto the beach itself. It took a decade to overhaul the beach walk. Its final stretch was formally completed last summer. But as a whole, it's a refresh of the idea of the boardwalk itself, in that it's not simply a walkway through the novelties of the seaside. It's a public space on which life unfolds, as much for those who live in the area, as it is for those just passing through. So the next time you find yourself in South Beach, Miami, be sure to take an evening stroll along the boardwalk down by the sea. For Monocle, I'm Thomas Lewis.
0: And from a very cold and snowy London, it's lovely to be transported to sunny Miami. Thomas, thank you very much indeed. And you can listen to The Concierge live every Wednesday at 1300 London time. And make sure to subscribe now on Monocle 24, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your audio. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer and Emma Searle. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parminchuin and our studio manager today, was Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday. And later on today, we're going to release the next episode of Monocle Reads. Very, very happy with this interview. It was with Heikh Abdul Ahad. Uh, he's written a book, A Stranger in Your Own City Travels in the Middle East Long War. He's Iraqi. He was born there. He's been covering the, the wars in the Middle East for three decades. And this book is told, the wars told, absolutely from the perspective of of those who live in those countries. And I can tell you it was an absolute eye-opener for me. I highly recommend it. And you can hear the discussion with him coming up on Monocle Reads a little bit later today. And, of course, The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.